Hello and welcome to the European Football Show on the World Football Index. Um, as ever, I'm your host, Alan Feely, coming to you from Seville in the south of Spain. And I'm joined today by four fantastic guests to talk about the previous week's European action. Um, we have guests from four different countries today. Uh, in Ireland, in Galway, we have John O'Sullivan. How are you, John? I'm great, Alan. Thanks. Uh, looking forward to uh, chatting again this week, although once again, it might necessarily be about football itself and more about events adjacent to the game. And we'll probably touch on the Ferrari at Old Trafford, I'm sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. In uh, Just about outside of Toronto, we have Emily Wilson. How are you, Emily? Hey, Alan. Uh, yeah, doing good. Nice and sunny over here. No more snow. I'm a happy, happy person. Uh, thanks for inviting me today, too. No worries. Thanks for joining us. Um, in Germany, we have Jasmine Baba. How are you, Jasmine? I'm good. I'm relaxed after a week of no Bundesliga. And finally, in Italy, we have Alasdair McKenzie. How are you, Alasdair? Yeah, uh, not so relaxed. Pretty, pretty tired and wired, but <laughs> ready to go. One last push. I've got a day off tomorrow, so let's do it. Happy days, happy days. Um, so yeah, it was a fascinating week of European action. Um, we'll kind of begin in the uh, Champions League and Europa League games, if that's cool. Um, starting with Real Madrid against Chelsea. Uh, the first leg, one all, um, tightly contested affair at Valdebebas in the Spanish capital. Uh, the second leg is this Tuesday coming um, in London and Stamford Bridge. Uh in the meantime, Madrid beat Osasuna 2-0 in La Liga to kind of further give strength to their title challenge. And Chelsea picked up a good win over a club who look kind of doomed to relegation in Fulham, really, um, at Stamford Bridge. Uh, Emily, just go to you in this one first. Um, what was your feeling post Chelsea on uh, Wednesday night and after the Osasuna game as well? How do you feel about how Madrid are shaping up coming into this kind of pivotal run of fixtures. I mean, I know they're quite struck by injuries, but uh, La Fabrica products have come in and kind of plugged a lot of important holes. And uh, also, of course, you have a diminutive Belgian who's close to full fitness, who could be in line to start on uh, Tuesday night. So how do you feel kind of uh, from a general sentiment about Madrid at the moment? Yeah, I mean, before the first leg, I was a little concerned um, just because, you know, Chelsea's been great in their Premier League so far. They're a really young side. Um, they don't have as many injuries as us. Like you pointed out there, Alan, I think it's like close to 60 injuries Real Madrid has had this season, which is just insane. That's an insane number. Um, but you know, without a doubt, Chelsea in the first leg, we're going to come out cracking, and they did. Um, Pulisic with the first goal, and it kind of woke Madrid up a little bit. Um, sometimes on the pitch, just because of whether it's just being tired or injuries, whatever it may be, um, sometimes the Dan's men just aren't finding a way to click. And thankfully, through the heroics of Benzema, who's been phenomenal all season, like on an individual level, um, he was able to draw and, you know, bring um, the second leg, make it level heading into uh, the match this week. So it's going to be an interesting one for sure. Tying it back to the La Liga performance over the weekend, though, um, it was frustrating for me, in my opinion, just because it took, I think it was 76 minutes. That's basically the entire game for anybody to find the back of the net. Thankfully, um, goals from Militao, Casemiro, two very unlikely goal scorers, but ask any Madrid fan and I'm sure they'll take it. So it's good to see that the entire team is trying to will themselves towards as many um, victories as they can, just given in the next few days, this is going to be arguably the biggest match of the season, um, unless you're talking about the title race, and that's just another story. But um, I think it's going to be 
a very, very close game in London. Um, I don't really see either side like pulling off a blowout or anything like that. I think it's going to be kind of a shadow of what the first leg was. A close one. It could come down to away goals. Who knows? Um, going to be a nervous 90 minutes, though, and we'll have to see what happens. But um, you brought up something interesting there, too, Hazard's return. I think a lot of people expect him to start um, this coming week on Tuesday, but me personally, I don't think he will. Um, you know, he played against Osasuna, I think it was, I don't maybe just over an hour a little bit. And good performance. Um, it's nice to see him, one, earn the start, and two, play that long as well, because um, he hasn't done that in a long time. But just given how important the semifinal is, I don't think Zidane's going to start him. I think it's a little bit too much of a fairy tale to have him start in his return, you know, in London. Um, hopefully, though, he can get some minutes towards the end, and hopefully he can do what a substitute does best if he ends up being one, and that's making a difference. So we're going to need... Um, all cylinders moving as the best they can to make it to the final. So we'll see. Going to be, like I said, very, very stressful 90 minutes. I'm really interested to see how Madrid line up, what formation they use, because, I mean, obviously, you know, Thibaut Coltois coming back to his old club, he's probably one of the best goalkeepers in the world this season. He's in phenomenal form. Um, but do you think that Zidane is going to go for a kind of the 4-2-3-1 shape he kind of played against Asasuna, where he can incorporate Hazard into kind of a central position and kind of free maybe Asensio and Vinicius behind um, Benzema, and then maybe have, I don't know, two kind of sitting midfielders? Or do you think that, you know, to incorporate Sergio Ramos back into the team, if he is to start, as has been rumoured, Will he go three at the back with Nacho and Militao, who've been playing so well in recent weeks? Or do you think he's going to kind of take the brave call and not start Sergio Ramos? Or if he does start Sergio Ramos, who do you think he'll bring in um, for Sergio Ramos, basically? Who do you think he'll start him ahead of Militao or Nacho? Or how do you see the kind of lineup uh, materializing? I mean, ideally, uh, we can get both Mendy and Ramos back. That would be a huge boost for the club. Um in the first leg, I just want to point out too, I believe they played a 3-5-2, and that was an interesting formation. Um, prior to the first leg against Chelsea, Madrid only played in that formation once this season, um, and that was against Atalanta. And I think it, was, it wasn't really the best formation, in my opinion, um, and it looked as if they were a little bit uncomfortable and unsure about how to play in that formation just because they've done it so little. So I think if... You know, if Ramos is fit, if he's the best he can be, um, obviously he's the captain as well. So if they can um, get him on the pitch, I think that's exactly what Zidane's going to do. Obviously, injury permitting, though, we'll have to see. So that being said, ideally, like I mentioned earlier, if Mendy and Ramos can get back, then um, as we found out today, obviously, Rafael Varane is out um, with an injury. They, I think it was Marca, they're reporting about 10 days or so. So I'd say. Um, Zidane would go for a normal 4-3-3. You know, make sure the midfield is going to be Cruz, Modric, Casemiro up top, Asensio, Vinny, Benzema. Um, again, like I mentioned earlier, I'd, I'd say Hazard's going to come in as a substitute. I really don't see him starting. And then at the back would be Nacho at right back, Militao and Ramos in the middle, and then Mendy on the left. But again, that's me crossing my fingers and hopefully hoping every all the cards fall into place. But we'll see. It's uh, it's going to be difficult just given, you know, um, Valverde is out. 
Carver Hall's out, Vasquez is out, now Varane as well. So it'll be interesting, but I think a classic Zidane style 4-3-3, I don't think he's going to be trying to pull any tricks over Chelsea. I think he'll go for something pretty standard, if possible. Great to be able to rest, uh, rest Cruz and Modric against Osasuna too, wasn't it? Having them kind of, you know, fully firing coming into this one. Um, and Marcelo, of course, as well, will be uh, is a question mark because he's been called for polling duty in the Madrid elections. So the latest talk is that he's going to catch a private jet to get to uh, London in time for the game. Remarkable story, that one. Um, but Jasmine, from a Chelsea perspective, like how confident do you think they'll be going into this game? I mean, a lot of the English press that I've been reading in the last few days have been quietly confident, pointing to the fact that you know, they were afraid of Atletico coming to the second leg and then Atletico proved to not be up to much. And it could be the same situation with Real Madrid. Um, do you think that Thomas Tuchel's men will be very, very kind of, you know, focused and ready going into this game? And do you think that it could be the outside show for the title? Yes, I think I've held that about Chelsea for quite a while now. Um, I think, especially in terms of their defence and defensive structure, bar maybe the West Brom performance where they got, didn't, well, Thiago Silva just had a little bit of a nightmare and got himself sent off. They've been absolutely wonderful in defence, and that's all they basically have to do against Real Madrid. They did a pretty good job. I mean, half of them, the first leg was up to Real Madrid's formation. I mean, they... They, they were uncomfortable with that kind of back three, back five. That's because Zidane doesn't actually train tactical concepts of the team. I don't think they've ever trained to be in that kind of formation before. So it, if they go anywhere near that again, they should get pummeled by Chelsea. They should have gotten pummeled by Chelsea in the first leg. And I think Chelsea will take that with them. I think, again, it was kind of the whole... They could have gone with more um, clinical attackers. I'm not naming Werner in that. (laughs) I mean, he can be very good, but I think in terms of what we've seen from him at Leipzig compared to Chelsea, it's not that same kind of clinical. You don't get the same kind of chances that we saw him get in the Bundesliga. And we kind of overrate him to be this perfect striker that he isn't. He's good at getting behind space, but... And we've seen so much more clinical clinical performances from uh, Ziyech and um, Havertz that I think if he starts one of them or both, we'll see a lot more clinically strong Chelsea. And I think they will be very encouraged to go through. I think they'll be very confident as well. Just as an aside, do you think that, you know, goals are easier to come by in the Bundesliga. I mean, just going on what you mentioned there, because I was thinking about Andre Silva, who's kind of exploded out of nowhere after quite a, you know, rather mediocre record in Spain and Italy has began to score, you know, serious goals for Eintracht Frankfurt this season. 25 goals. Uh, he's up there in the um, the golden boot race, actually level with Erling Haaland, Kylian Mbappe, and Cristiano Ronaldo in the point system, just behind Lewandowski and Messi. Um, like, do you think that you know he could be in line for a big move this summer? And do you think that it mightn't come out so well? I mean, another example just off the top of my head is Luka Jovic, who didn't really adapt to life in Madrid. Like, is there something about the Bundesliga, especially for the kind of teams who are maybe just below the elite, that goals are maybe more easy to come by or something? Or is that the nature of the game? Or what, what do you think? It's absolutely the nature of the game. I don't think any team apart from uh, Julian Nagelsmann's Leipzig and 
pretty much to an extent Glasner's Wolfsburg. No one else has a defensive, um, a good defensive structure. Um, we see more shots taken in the Bundesliga than I think the highest in all the top five leagues. And these are just converting into goals more. I think it's like goals allowed. XGA um, is higher too. So yeah, you do get more chances. The way game the games are played over there is just opening up for chances. We've seen it for like with Haaland and Mbappe, that kind of um, the comparison, and you can't really compare it because if you look at the amount of shots taken in both leagues and how many um, shots allowed per defence, League 1 is notoriously harder and more defensive. So, yeah, that, that is definitely a part to play in higher goal tallies over that. I guess also every team that plays PSG in Ligue 1 is going to set up a low block and they're going to be watching Kylian Mbappe like a hawk. So it's like, it's very interesting, actually, when you think about, you know, the value of goals and all that kind of thing. But I think that, you know, characters like Andrew Silva could be sought after this summer because, I mean, obviously only two clubs can sign Mbappe and Haaland. Um, so maybe players like Silva and also like Alexander Isak, young kind of players who are just below that kind of category could be uh, highly sought after because clubs need centre forwards, you know. And, um, but anyway, and, oh sorry, but just one more thing. No, Silva's yeah, um, agent is Mendes, so uh, <laughs> maybe let's see. <laughs> Absolutely, could be a good shout. Um, Alistair, uh, Roma lost six two to Manchester United in the Europa League. Um, followed up with a 2-0 defeat at Sampdoria uh, they're just outside the kind of European places in Serie A um, I'm hearing that Paolo Fonseca is coming under a bit of pressure uh, what's the kind of view from Rome about uh, their chances of overturning if there's any and also just in terms of the way they're finishing the season as a whole well, um, I'd say that's a very generous take on it, that they're just outside the European places and that Fonseca's under a bit of pressure because the reality is that they're pretty much completely out of European contention. They've not won, they're, they're winless in six games in all competitions and Fonseca is a dead man walking, he's, he's done. Um, it's only a matter of time before that becomes official. And... Yeah, it's 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 all unraveled quite quickly for them because they were in great form not that long ago, but in the last month or two, the entire season has unraveled. At Manchester, it was obviously a humiliation. Um, they went there with plenty of people reminding them of the seven-one defeat they had a few years ago. Um, you know, didn't really expect it would get up to that kind of level again, but they were almost there by the end of the match after completely capitulating in the second half. And they don't really have anything left to play for in Serie A. And it's going to take an absolute miracle to, to do anything on Thursday to turn that tie around. So what was, like I say, not that long ago, a reasonably promising season for them has um, yeah, completely fallen on its face very quickly. So I guess as a two-part question, who do you think is going to come in to take over um, from Fonseca uh, when he does go? And also, have you been kind of irritated by the maybe, you know, uh, kind of hot takes from people who don't follow Serie A, maybe talking it down because Roma are the last Italian team standing in European competition this season? So what, what do you think about that? 
Well, thankfully, I've not seen too much of that because it is the kind of thing that would probably wind me up. <laughs> but um, I mean, the, the strange thing is, it's 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 made for a much more interesting um, uh, Serie A kind of top four race, title race this season than it perhaps otherwise would have because. Roma are down in seventh, kind of cut adrift from the top six, but because all the top six have, have left Europe behind a while ago, they've all been focusing fully on Serie A, and it's become very interesting very quickly. Um, but yeah, it's it's not been a good year by any means for uh, for teams for Italian teams in Europe, uh, which we, you know the first time I came on this podcast, unfortunately couldn't touch on because they were already out by then as well. But, um, yeah, in terms of who's going to replace Fonseca at the moment, it seems like Maurizio Sarri is the most likely option. Um, all sorts of reports about that getting closer and closer. It would be a very interesting choice. Uh, the reason I say that is that what we've seen with Sarri, both at Juventus and at Chelsea, is that he is not really a coach you employ if you want to get an instant um, quick fix to your problems. He's not going to come in and uh, start playing his Napoli team-style football immediately after one season. And Roma is a famously impatient club and impatient fan base. So, I, although the idea on paper I think seems quite quite attractive, the idea of Sarri taking over in Roma and trying to get the best out of what is a pretty talented squad still, um, I, I do think it'll take time and kind of pressure coming on and will be inevitable uh, fairly quickly. But from outside of Italy, it always struck me that, you know, Sarri was perfect for Napoli in many ways in terms of his kind of style was very, you know, kind of countercultural, almost kind of revolutionary in many ways and kind of against the elite, you could say. Um, and it definitely was the opposite case at uh, Juventus. He never seemed for me to, to kind of fit there, you know, um, in terms of his, his kind of personal style and stuff. What's the culture of Roma like as a club? Will he be welcomed there or will he be kind of treated with kind of, you know, question marks before he's even arrived? Or do you think that they're kind of, as a club, more kind of welcoming of characters like him? Well, I, I don't think it'll be nearly the same kind of thing as when he went to Juventus because Napoli fans, you know, Napoli, it's a, it's a one-club city, which is a very rare thing in, in Italy and most places, to be honest. And because it's a one-club city, they see their main rivals as being Juventus. And Sarri made a big deal of playing up to that rivalry while he was coached there. And, you know, the fact that he took that Napoli team to the brink of the title, it was then who was supposed to be the team that was going to break this cycle of Juventus championships. Um, so they felt a huge sense of betrayal by the fact that he ended up at Juventus. Uh, and that really didn't go down very well with Juventus fans either and they didn't see him as a man who uh, who kind of fitted in what they like to think of as being the Juventus style and that they're this kind of stylish, fashionable club and they don't want this kind of tracksuit-wearing, cigarette-butt-chewing guy on the sidelines. Um, so, yeah, I think at Roma, he wouldn't have to deal with as much problems based on what's previously ha happened in his career, even though there's a little rivalry between um, Napoli and Roma. But the nature of the club is extremely demanding. And I think this is always the problem coaches face in Rome is that the expectations don't always match up with the reality. And, and when you look at their squads, when you look at uh, versus the expectations, um, it, it's, it's not like he's going to be able to turn them into con title contenders immediately. So uh, that's, that's where I have my main concern, I guess, about Sadio at Roma would be trying to live up to those expectations. 
certainly some fascinating storylines in Syria next season. Um, lots of work for you to get through, I imagine, Alistair. Uh, John, um, Liverpool and Manchester United drew nil all on Sunday. Oh, sorry, I set up my notes uh, ahead of the game. Uh, I assumed it would be a nil all draw, um, but it actually didn't even happen. Uh, what, what, what was it taken the bizarre events that saw United um, fans basically storm Old Trafford in mass protest against the Glazers and force the game to be cancelled? <laughs> Yeah, it was probably the best spectacle that a Liverpool United game at Old Trafford has been in the last five years. They're generally absolute dirge, terrible, terrible games to watch with neither team really showing much ambition to actually try and win the game and happy enough with, with the draw. Yeah, it was uh, it was unbelievably strange. I mean, because a lot of journalists were boycotting Twitter, there was no real narrative being formed around it and there was a lot of maybe inaccuracy through the reporting of it so we were all just getting these videos of these dads sliding around on the pitch at Old Trafford and shouting and throwing random objects onto the pitch and it was just unbelievably surreal and really infitting with the context of what has been the strangest season football has seen probably in my lifetime watching the game. I can understand a lot of the United fans, you know, uh, frustration at uh, the Glazer family because effectively they're using the club as a credit card. The club that the money that Manchester United spend rather is all club generated. So they do spend a ton of money, but it's because they're such a commercial giant that they're able to spend this money. And it's not because of any, it's not because of any benevolence from, uh, from the, from the owners. And, you know, in a lot of ways they've kind of let the club wither because, you know, like I've mentioned, United have spent tons of money in in the not so in the not so distant past, but they've spent it terribly. You know, in most circumstances, and that's because the owners haven't put in place the infrastructure in terms of director of football, in terms of analytics, in terms of scouting to be able to spend that money properly. And it's been borne out in on field results. They haven't won the league in eight years. Which, I mean, if you had gone back in time twenty years ago and you tell someone that Manchester United, who are like a behemoth a huge, huge club will go eight years out winning a league title. They'd look at you like you were nuts, but that's how it's transpired. So, you know, a lot of fans are are very, very frustrated. And uh, I think it's kind of nearly been incited by a lot of the media and, you know, a lot of social media in the, in the, in the, in the past few weeks. And with the Super League, with the Super League then, uh, you know, abhorrent idea, uh, it, it's kind of boiled over and we saw what we saw at Old Trafford. And now, it's kind of put the cat amongst the pigeons of scheduling because now we don't know when this Liverpool game is going to take place. I mean, realistically, it would probably be a dead rubber anyway because too many things have to coalesce for Liverpool to be able to get top four, in my opinion. And also Man United are fairly safely enshrined in the top four. So even though it is probably one of the biggest club fixtures in the world, there wouldn't have been a whole lot riding on it regardless. So when the FA uh, or when the Premier League reschedule it will be very interesting. Uh, had United not had such a comfortable margin in beating Roma, it could have been very awkward for them if it was, you know, scheduled sometime closer to the second leg. But in that regard, it probably won't matter. But it's just another real blemish on uh, on football this season. And uh, I'm kind of glad that a lot of fans are taking uh, this power into their own hands, but not to do it in such a way. But hopefully it emboldens other fan bases to know that they can make a difference, but like without going in and really making a balls of their own club stadium. But do you not think that, you know, the Glazers have made a balls of their own club stadium? Like, I mean, Old Trafford is notorious for kind of almost being falling down, you know, at odds to 
a, a club the size and wealth of United. I mean, when you compare it to state of the art grounds like the Emirates um, and also, you know, the Spurs Stadium, Old Trafford is very, very old in many ways, you know. And like, do you not think that it was only by breaking into the ground and causing absolute havoc and postponing the game and putting the cat amongst the pigeons but when the game didn't really matter that much to either team like is that not the best way to protest and do you not think that this could actually spark like protest of a similar ilk you know when the Liverpool fans are going to go and hey we're all we're, we're more proud than United fans we're going to protest as well and then you know all these kind of things happening do you think that could happen or what do you yeah. think? Yeah, don't get me wrong. I mean, objectively, they're terrible owners. They're absentee landlords. Um, I think their perspective is probably Old Trafford's capacity is 75,000. That's what matters. It doesn't matter about the fans' experience. It doesn't matter about their safety. It doesn't matter about the atmosphere. Uh, I don't think they care about that or take that into consideration. So I 100% agree with you that they're they're leeches. They're terrible, terrible owners. And uh, in some ways they have held the club and well not in some ways in lots of ways they've held the club back despite the fact that the club is still able to be in such a position where it can spend obscene amounts of money and yeah it, it will embolden uh, a lot of other fan bases I know the Spares of Shankly which are a Liverpool fan group actually have a meeting with Liverpool's CEO tomorrow so they've uh, they've organised that off the back of the of the Super League of the Super League protests and the, and the Flores surrounding that now whether that can make a tangible difference or whether the CEO will just pay lip service to them and not actually do anything remains to be seen. But I hope this is the start of a process where fans are integrated more into these big decisions and fans are considered more because ultimately fan culture, in my opinion, is probably the biggest uh, the biggest USB to European football and, and to world football. I think it's, it's what makes it special. I cover a lot of other sports and I think the real passion and the intensity to footballing fandom is what makes it special and anything that tries to gentrify that or dilute that or take the power away from the people who are ultimately the most important in terms of football the fans in my opinion is terrible so hopefully these kind of events will show owners and will show leagues that they can't you know they can't do things with impunity that try to marginalize the fans the fans are what matters and this was an example of the fans taking taking control of their of their own destiny so to speak and uh, i was glad it happened um and hopefully more maybe not necessarily violence but because there was a policeman attack like i wouldn't condone that in any way shape or form but hopefully there is more instances of fan groups acting in unison and not along club lines hopefully they all pull together in one common direction and this will be the start of it absolutely uh jasmine you wanted to come in there Oh no, I was just going to say if um, Arsenal fans manage to get on the Emirates pitch, I will um, <laughs> probably join them. I, I don't know. I'm up, up for the revolution. Would you do better than Sabayas in midfield? That's the question. Of course, but that's not hard. <sighs> Danny Sabayas, Jesus Christ. Um, yeah, I mean, like... And Mini, what was your kind of taking it from Spain, the whole Super League fiasco? I mean, I know the Spanish press are kind of flabbergasted by the strength of the English reaction. Um, what's your personal take on how Madrid specifically, but also the Spanish kind of press collectively have responded to um, the news of the Super League and the whole kind of, you know, affront that it posed to the kind of cultural fabric of European football as we know it? Yeah, no, it was obviously a very, very big story a quickly developing story too. Um, and 
to be honest, you know, we've heard uh, talks about the ESL for so long and to actually be one awake when the news was breaking. Um, and then just to see it develop so quickly, I was like, okay, wow, this is, this is actually happening. Um, but you know, when it came to light that Perez was kind of at the pinnacle of it, pushing the idea forward, me personally, I wasn't too surprised. Um, you know, him as an individual, as the president of Madrid, you and just what he's done for the club, you know, the whole Galactico era and everything that he's done in recent years, you have to have a certain mentality to pull off big deals like that um, in terms of bringing in some of the top players. So to see him at the pinnacle, again, I, I wasn't too surprised. But um, to counter that, though, I don't support the ESL. I want to make that clear. Um, I was just like, this kind of makes sense given the deals that he's done in the past and everything. But I think um, seeing what happened in the Premier League over in England, you know, this past weekend, it's very visible that it's just something that will not happen. And um, even with the talks about Real Madrid and PSG and City, or not PSG, sorry, City and Chelsea pulling out of the Champions League and then PSG ultimately winning. Um, you know, those rumors were seemingly pretty serious rumors um, and it, it could have happened. And just the idea of the ESL, obviously not a good one whatsoever. Um, but it was very interesting to see how everything unfolded and how, you know, these 12 clubs actually thought that they could try and pull off something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Alistair, from an Italian perspective, I'm intrigued to get your take on it because, I mean, obviously it was a very northern Italian driven project I mean both Milan clubs and the Turin club involved what was the sentiment in Rome because obviously there's two massive football clubs in Rome Lazio and Roma and they weren't involved in these plans so how was it reacted to in Rome well you know I mean I'd say that he in general I've been really disappointed by the reaction from the public from the fans in, uh, in Italian football in general and there hasn't been anything like the, the kind of outcry that we've seen in England the way it was responded to in the media was that, you know, English football has saved this from happening. Um, the Italian media, sports media, were actually quite good and quite proactive in condemning this and, and wanting to stop it. But uh, other than, I'd say, what one banner from the UV fans, one statement from the Milan Ultras, which kind of talked more about the general football system in the Super League, and then there was a letter some VIP Inter fans sent to Javier Zanetti trying to ask him to stop it, but that, you know, there wasn't this kind of huge outcry. And interestingly, I found talking to people around here, it was more just a sense of resignation. Um, these three clubs have dominated the Italian football landscape for so long. Um, and we've had so many scandals over the years that there's a, a very, very deeply embedded suspicion as well. And when things like this happen, and you've got guys like Andrea Agnelli pushing it, I don't think it even surprises anyone that much. Um, I think it's basically all the worst suspicions people have about the likes of Agnelli coming to, coming to reality. Um, so, yeah, it, it was very disappointing. Um, there were some banners put up outside the Stade Olympico, uh, kind of co-signed by both teams condemning it and so on, but... Uh, yeah, like I say, it's not been nearly the same kind of, you know, taking to the streets backlash as, as it has been in, in England. Yeah, it's interesting how different countries reacted to it in different ways, for sure. Um, but taking you back to the actual football, 
John, I want to ask you about uh, PSG versus Manchester City. I mean, obviously the first leg was won by Man City 2-1. Uh, City went and beat Palace 2-0 the weekend with their reserves, basically. Um, and by their reserves, I mean Gabriel Jesus and Sergio Aguero starting together um, quite remarkably. Uh, PSG beat Len uh, 2-1. Um, really tantalising game in prospect uh, tomorrow night, right? Oh, absolutely. Um I actually thought until the red card that and until the first goal even that PSG were excellent. They they looked they had a very inventive set piece routine to open the scoring through Marquinhos. They looked very solid in the 4-4-2 shape that we saw them play against Bayern Munich. They looked quite enterprising on the break and uh Man City seemed to have a tough time uh, containing them despite the fact that the Parisians were were playing on the counter-attack and then they get a fortuitous equaliser uh, through Kevin De Bruyne. There's there's no way he meant to shoot there, but uh, it went in. And then, in fairness to City, after that point, they were superb. Their loss was clearly helped by Idrissa Ganagay's red card. But uh, after that, you know, they were in cruise control and they probably could have even won by a bigger margin. Um, for example, that move that they constructed before the free kick that Mario scored for was absolutely brilliant. The passing was superb. They played it out from the back. They kept it for what felt like an eternity. And then, you know, when they felt the time was right, they put on the afterburners and increased the tempo, uh, drew a foul. And then from there, Mares knocked thanks to really a really abject wall. And Presnel Kimbembe was very guilty in that regard, uh, managed to score and give City the win. So I think that this tie is probably done. But like, you know... it. <laughs> I, I was going to say this about the Chelsea tie as well, in that in Karim Benzema, Real Madrid have a player that can change the narrative of the game and can change the flow of the game at one moment. It was kind of what happened in the first leg. And then uh, PSG also have these kinds of players like Neymar and Mbappe don't need much opportunity to make a big impression. And maybe even to a lesser extent is the same as true of Angel Di Maria. So I think, I think City are clearly the favourites and I think they will win, but I don't think it's like a 100% foregone conclusion because we know what kind of talent that they have in an attacking perspective. And then we also know that Mauricio Pochettino has clearly got buy-in from the squad. The way they worked and the way they played in this kind of defensive 4-4-2 low block shape is is a real coup to his man management because it's not always a foregone conclusion that really talented players will like buy into a defensive structure like that and work really hard on behalf of the team. So for him to do that with a squad that's been notoriously kind of difficult to work with for coaches, I think Thomas Tuchel had play, had problems with certain players. Um, even going back, Unai Emery was the same. So for him to get that buy-in straight away is a real indicator, I think, of his man-management prowess. And so they definitely have the capability to mount somewhat of a comeback. But really, I think uh, I think Manchester City uh, have this. And you know, looking forward to the final, whether it's against Chelsea. Who, who beat them in the FA Cup semi-final and were very impressive in doing so, or Real Madrid. I think that City would probably be the favourites in that as well. But uh, yeah, I thought I thought it was uh, I thought overall it was a good game. I think some of the hyperbole about City's results on social media was ridiculous, calling it like the best ever, you know, English away performance in the Champions League. But to give them their due, they were they were absolutely excellent for the final twenty minutes, and that's all it takes for a team like that. They don't have to be good for the whole game to, in order to win it. Absolutely. Um, what you make of Neymar? I mean, like he's kind of gendered a lot of discussion this Champions League campaign, especially I think because the level of performance has been very good. Um, we've already seen, you know, that he has it in him to pull off a spectacular comeback in 
2015, he was instrumental as Barcelona beat PSG after losing the first leg in, in Paris, uh, mounting that kind of spectacular remontada. He was the star of the show that night, actually, as opposed to Lionel Messi. Uh, do you think that he has it what he has it in him this year to maybe, you know, pull off something like that and kind of write his name in the history books and kind of put himself there as saying, you know, I'm up there with Cristiano, I'm up there with Lionel Messi? Um, or do you think that Manchester City are too proficient of an outfit to allow that to happen? I think that Neymar is an absolutely incredible player. You only need to look at his record for Brazil. He has over 60, 60 goals in 100 and something caps, despite not being that much of a no player. He, and I think sometimes a lot of people conflate not liking Neymar the person, which is their own prerogative. And, you know, you can, they can say what they like with Neymar the player because he is a spectacular player. And if, if he was motivated sufficiently, I don't think the fact that City are this really well calibrated machine would stand in the way between him and delivering. A brilliant performance so it's whether you know he can have the requisite i think uh motivation and bit between his teeth because if he does i don't think i don't think there's many players who would be able to stop him he, he's an absolutely brilliant player but uh, that being said i think that man city are are, are the clear favorites and uh, they should they should progress but in the in the context of this first game i think that neymar was certainly more impressive than mbappe mbappe was a little bit peripheral now it doesn't help that you know PSG were playing on the break and they weren't seeing that much of the ball. But and the instances where he where he was allowed to stretch his legs, he didn't make the best use of it. And Neymar was certainly, I think, the more impressive of the duo in that game. So yeah, definitely, he he is the kind of player like I mentioned, carrying Benzema either that he can just completely alter the flow of a game or of a tie. I think maybe in the last decade, he's probably been possibly with Robert Lewandowski, maybe the best player in the tier below Ronaldo and Messi, also maybe with Luis Suarez. So yeah, like he's inherently capable of, of, of changing a game like this. It's just, I would doubt that City would be profligate enough at the other end to make it maybe as relevant as it could be. I don't, I don't see them not carving out uh, a decent number of opportunities and, uh, and, and taking them in this game. Ruben Diaz and John Stones did a really good job on Mbappe, to be fair. But I guess the constant discussion about his future can't be helping things. I mean, for a guy who's only about 22 years old, it must be very hard to have the constant chatter around his future. And the, the sums of money being discussed is remarkable. But um, going on to Villarreal Arsenal and Jasmine, I know this is a game that you're really looking forward to. Um, your old boss, Una Emery, uh, welcoming Arsenal to La Ceramica. Uh, winning 2-1. I mean, like, I found it to be a weird game because Villarreal were 2-0 up in the 72nd minute with Arsenal 10 men. Like, this should be the kind of game that Villarreal close out and win and put it to bed, get a third goal. Instead, they conceded a admittedly dubious penalty, got Etienne Kapui sent off, leveled up to 10 men. And now Arsenal have a real chance going to the second leg. I mean, like, my big complaint with Villarreal has been that they're quite soft-centered, quite soft-bellied. I mean, compared to Sevilla, they don't have the ball Sevilla have. They don't have the experience Sevilla have. They don't have the, the kind of courage and the, the grit that Sevilla have. So, I mean, like Arsenal must be kind of optimistic going to the second leg, no? I mean, they beat Newcastle 2-0 at the weekend. Villarreal beat Hetafe 1-0. Uh, and Una Emery rested Raul Alvio, the experienced centre-back, and Gerard Menno, the star striker, uh, with Arsenal in mind. Um What's your take on the second leg and how do you feel ahead of this game? I think I felt a lot more confident than I did halfway through the first leg. I mean, it was probably the worst half of football I've ever watched, maybe even the 
or the worst 60 minutes I've ever watched. And that is saying a lot. <laughs> We've had some pretty bad games. And um, I think it might have actually helped the team after Ceballos got sent off just because that's how terrible it was. I think we have been, Arsenal have been quite unlucky with injuries and it, it has seen quite a shift in a really bad team. I, I, I don't know what was happening with the false nine, but it just didn't really play off. Um, but what we saw from the 60 minutes was basically an Emery effect. I mean, that soft belly that you talk of that Villarreal have was basically Arsenal under Unai Emery as well. Um, so, I, I mean, the only thing is, is if Arsenal can close them out from home and not concede and score the goals that they need. Um, and it, a lot depends if Kieran Tierney is actually fit um, enough to start that game. I think we need Shaka back in midfield, but the double pivot of Ceballos Thomas Party is something I never want to see again. Um <laughs> I think a lot of it, we saw Aubameyang come back against Newcastle and, you know, um, Arteta was able to somehow rest people against Newcastle. He started off with a double pivot between Elneny and Ceballos. He didn't, he didn't actually try. <laughs> um, and we beat them. We absolutely thrashed them in terms of how many chances we had and, and you know, shots, shots on target, possession. Newcastle did not turn up. And I think we needed one of those games just to be a little bit more basic and remember we can do things properly. Um, I would say, again, I'm more confident than I was and a lot of it does depend on Kieran and pushing Xhaka in the middle. Um, without that, we do not have a proper structure to even try and challenge. Um, so, I don't know, it's just... It's just it's always been Arsenal against themselves and Villarreal is probably the other most Arsenal team that you could get. So uh, I can see it going either way. Um, Sabaya's being suspended for this game is probably for the best. Um, we just need to figure out how to get that left back uh, position just a little bit better now. Emery withdrew Paco Alcacer, a striker for Francis Coughlin in a halftime. Defensive midfielder for a striker. Very defensive switch when you're winning a game 2-0. Um, I saw Colin Miller tweet that, you know, Emery is, his greatest strength is also his greatest weakness and that he's a very reactive coach. And that's why he does well in cup competitions, but not so well in league competitions because in league competitions, you need to be able to take the game to opponents as opposed to just reacting to things all the time. Um, and Colin pointed out that Arteta very much has the same trait. Uh, would you agree with that? And also, what do you think of the key differences between Arteta and between Emery? There was a pretty glowing piece on The Athletic um, ahead of the game, uh, basically kind of singing Arteta's praises at the expense of um, Emery, you could say. But if you look at the scoreboard, they're not really much different. In fact, Arteta's doing worse, you could say. Um, what's your whole take on the Arteta v Emery situation or do you think that the fact that Arteta inherited Emery's team without being able to bring in his own characters has kind of coloured in a way that's made it very difficult for him to operate uh, freely there's, I think there's several things I do, do not think Arteta is a reactive manager I think a reactive manager 
would have seen that Ceballos would have got himself sent off. I think every person in the world saw Danny Spires on a booking, the way that he played that night, and he did not react to that. He is not a reactive manager. He often waits too late to change things. There's several times where we've needed an attacking threat and he's let very flawed systems go on for far too long. Um, So no, he is not a reactive manager in the same way Emery is. and I, but I would agree that that reactiveness of Emery is definitely a down point at times. Um, in terms of Emery versus Arteta, I do think Arteta is better than Emery. Um, I mean, he won silverware in a very messed up season without hardly any of his own players and also during COVID. Um Emery didn't even win that. He didn't even get us into the Champions League. He made players digress and unfit because of his standard of play. Um, he couldn't communicate. And I think at least Arteta, in the very basic way, has his own principles, whether they fit or don't, or you know, he hasn't actually fleshed them out yet because he's so young in his coaching career um, is another thing. So I think you can say that, oh, Emery's got more points, Emery's done this, Emery's done that, but Arteta won the silverware. This is all Arsenal fans have been hearing for the last 15 years, that they need to win silverware, that they need to win silverware, and he did that. So anything could happen, and he's already far above Emery. Secondly, he, he has to deal with Emery's best. It was 18 months of really bad tactics, something that didn't fit in the philosophy. And, you know, there was a lot of money wasted. Pepe does not look like a 70 to 80 million pound player. You know, he doesn't really fit into the system. They've changed so much of the club. And obviously, we've got the owners running around like headless chicken wanting us to join leagues with Bayern and Barcelona, who we all know too well that we get thrashed every year in the Champions League when we were in it. Um, it, it, You know, Arteta is dealing with all of these things. And I think he's dealing with them pretty well. Um, I think this is a really, really strange season. If you look at the Premier League table and you see where Arsenal are and you realise, oh, you know, they're five points. I don't think I said this last week, but they're only five points behind the defending champions. They're only uh, seven points off Tottenham. It's not that big of a gap because of COVID. It really, the COVID seasons are... You can't take them seriously just because of the amount of games, the amount of injuries, and you don't know what's happening next week. You, if you can even go abroad to play your game normally, or if you're in a neutral stadium, so I really wouldn't compare so much right now. John, you wanted to come in there? Yeah, it's just I was wondering what Alizar would think, like the comparisons between, say, Arteta and the parallels between him and Andrea Pirlo, who are you know two very inexperienced coaches who've been thrust into massive jobs and like without the expectation that there might be teething problems i think in football we we give a lot of latitude to younger players and we're like yeah younger players will make mistakes it's an inherent part of their development 
and they'll learn from them and then improve from them. But somehow we don't give that same leeway to coaches. So uh, sometimes I think, what do they expect? And especially in the context of Arteta, where he wasn't backed like in the market, like Emery would have been backed. Okay, he signed Thomas Partey. That hasn't really worked out. But other than that, he's really not been massively, massively invested in his squad. And in fact, even Arsenal's batter players this season, in my opinion, have been academy players like Emile Smith-Rowe and... Uh, and uh, Saka, so I think I think he's had a really difficult job, and uh, and it'll be interesting to think if if Alistair's opinion on whether Juve should keep Pirlo or whether he will stay. But it's just sometimes I don't know what clubs expect when they make decisions like this. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's let's go to Syria because it was a very interesting weekend for Syria football, and um, in the, kind of the top four race and also the relegation battle, and also the actual. I would say title race, but it wasn't really a race. It was it's it's run. Uh, Inter are champions. They beat uh, Crotone two 0 away from home, and then Sassuolo's draw with Atlanta uh, meant that they were crowned as champions. Um, but just to begin with Juventus, uh, Alasdair, uh, they beat Udinese two one. They came from a goal down to do so uh, to keep their kind of top four hopes alive. Um, it was a Cristiano Ronaldo brace, but um, from what I heard, there was quite a bit of pressure on that game and. If it didn't work out the way it did, uh, Pirlo could have had his head taken, could he? I mean, quite literally at this point, probably. Um, they were terrible in that game. Uh, they were so, so bad for a team that had to win at all costs to kind of keep chances of qualifying for the Champions League alive. They did absolutely nothing until the final 10 minutes, and Ronaldo bailed them out. Well, to be honest, it wasn't even Ronaldo who bailed them out. It was Rodrigo de Paul in the Udinese wall who decided to try and stick an arm out to, to block Ronaldo's free kick to give away a penalty. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that is a team with a lot of problems, you know, to go on to the, the earlier question about Pirlo. I mean, the, the thing is, the, the Pirlo gamble was such a ridiculous punt that it, it's not even comparable with Arteta, who had been an understudy to Pep Guardiola at City all that time, who had been you know, studying, learning the ropes, learning how to at least kind of have an idea of what it takes to coach at that level. Pirlo hadn't even finished his qualifications when he was given the UV job. He hadn't coached a, a school team. He hadn't coached a youth team. He'd been under-23 coach for, for a week when they promoted him. It's, it's not actually comparable to a lot of the comparisons people want to make, whether it's Zidane, whether it's Arteta. It's not, because he's not had any time at all, even trying to work out what, what kind of football he wants to play. So you can understand why, it, why it's not gone well. Um, I think it's, it's put Yide in a really, really difficult position, because even if they do scrape to a top four finish this season, are they really uh, going to back Pirlo to make the progress that needs to be made next season to 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 cut what has now become a, a huge gap? This is a, a Juve team that's won Serie A for the last nine consecutive years until this year, and they've made it look easy, to be honest, most of that time. And all of a sudden, they're you know fighting for their lives to to even qualify for a competition that only a week ago they decided they were so far above that they didn't even want to be a part of it anymore. So it's embarrassing in all sorts of levels for Juventus at the moment. And there are plenty of reports linking uh, Max Allegri back to the club. 
And it's kind of a question of whether they, I guess that would be a case of them swallowing their pride because the reason that they moved on from Allegri was that they decided they'd reached a point where they wanted to match um, getting results with playing good football. And Allegri played a very pragmatic and effective style of football that took them, let's not forget, to two Champions League finals as well as all those league titles. But they thought by bringing in Sari and then Pirlo that they'd be able to win, but win in style. And it's been a complete disaster. But also, I think Sari's spell has been kind of, has undergone a bit of a revision now as well, because in comparison to Pirlo, Sari was a great success. But I guess, you know, Mikel Arteta was, he's a very intense character. He was always very studious when he played for Everton and then Arsenal, very kind of competent, confident guy. Uh, very much a leader. He was one of those characters who looked built for management from the beginning. Uh, like anyone who can read, who's read, I think I play, therefore I am. Pirlo's autobiography <laughs> will not really have thought that he's a, a person who thought about being a coach. I mean, he quite openly almost derided it. Um, so that kind of made the shock all the more for me because I never saw him as being a coach. I didn't think it was in his character. Um, but do you think that Allegri would be the man they go for? What about Zinedine Zidane? Because he's openly flirted with Juve in the past. Um, I personally think his time is coming to an end at Madrid. We can ask Emily about this after, but do you think that he could be a goer, Zinedine? Well, I mean, that, that's something that's been talked about for a long time now. Um, I think they like that idea um, long term. The thing that you have to remember here as well is that Pirlo may be a rookie and he may be a disaster, but he's very cheap. Um, he is costing them 1.8 million euros net per year. That's in comparison to Conte being paid 12 million euros net per year at Inter. So at a time when finances are you know, at the forefront of every conversation being had in boardrooms um, around top Italian clubs, top European clubs, the fact that Pirlo isn't going to take a huge chunk of their wage budget will be appealing to them. The next question is really what happens with Ronaldo. Because I think if Ronaldo does end up moving on this summer, um, which I still find quite unlikely, but if he does, he's being paid 31 million euros net per year currently. So that frees up a hell of a lot um, on the books for them to be able to play with to try and do something different, whether that's in refreshing the playing squad or bringing in a bigger name coach like say Zidane but I think it will be difficult for them to for example move on from Pirlo to make a much more expensive appointment in, in the dugout and on top of that try and refresh a squad that in all honesty is just not at a standard where it can hope to win the Champions League next season which is which is where they want to be. So the results uh, over the weekend in Serie A Napoli beat 3-0-2-0 away from home and then drew one all with Cagliari at the Stadio, Diego Armando Maradona. Uh, Lazio beat Milan 3-0 and then followed up with a 4-3 defeat of Genoa. Uh, Milan beat Benevento 2-0 uh, after that. Um, what do you think will be the top four places in Serie A come the end of the season? Uh, who do you think are finishing the campaign with strength? I have absolutely no idea at this point. <laughs> this is what makes it... Um... Yeah, so exciting. Well, good to have something to be excited about now that the title's over. But for me, I, I still put Atalanta and Napoli slightly ahead of the, the other teams. I think they've got uh, the combination of good momentum behind them and uh, get, and easier kind of fixture list in the run into the 
uh, to the end of the season. And then that obviously would mean that one of Juventus and Milan is 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 uh, not going to qualify if that's the case. Lazio, it's a really difficult one. I think they've left themselves with probably a bit too much work to do, but they've also got a game in hand. And if they win their game in hand, um, they're right up there. And they've also got one of the easiest run-ins here. The most interesting point is probably going to come next weekend because Juventus play Milan. And I think whoever loses that game is not going to reach the top four. Um, I think it's as simple as that. They'll probably end up, both both teams in bad form, it'll probably be, end up being the, the final nail in the coffin. But as it stands, I think it would not surprise me to see Atalanta and Napoli um, finish behind Inter. And then it, it, it's quite, it's too tough to call, to be honest. I think Milan might just <laughs> about edge it. Um, but, I mean, a big part of me, after all these Super League discussions, I I would kind of love the poetic justice of Milan and Juve both finishing outside of the top four after the, uh, the Super League um, discussions we just had. Absolutely. Is Milan-Juve, is that in the San Siro or is it in Turin, that game? Uh, it's in Turin. Um, okay. okay. Yeah, not that it makes too much difference in that <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I guess you know a word for Inter I mean very very impressive campaign for them uh, Lauturo Martinez Romero Lukaku both in fine form in front of goal Nicolo Barella possibly the breakout star of the team um, a very strong Conte style team w- what's your kind of verdict on their campaign and on the job Conte has done in wrestling the title from Juventus's grasp is it a case of Juventus falling off the the perch and Juve ca- and, and intercapitalizing, or is it uh, a scudetto worthy of a truly great championship team? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, this we have to be honest. It's obviously helped that Juventus have had such a bad year, but um, Inter are, are definitely worthy winners. This this season, I said at the start, I kind of expected it to be uh, that there wasn't going to be necessarily a standout team that was going to win by a huge points margin. I expected. Um, quite a low points total for the winner this season, but that's that. It looks like that could not be the case, and Inter could easily get over ninety points. And yeah, it, it's it's amazing work, really, and it's amazing how quickly everyone has adapted to the new reality, like it's normal. I mean, when Conte took over um, two years ago, Inter hadn't finished any higher than fourth for eight years. Um, they were twenty-one points behind Juventus in the, in the league standings. They were barely back in the Champions League for the first time in years. Um, so he has built this single-handedly um, with the with the help of the CEO, uh, Giuseppe Marotta, who's really helped to, to actually build the playing squad the way that Conte wants it and has the experience from doing the same thing at Juventus and building their successful teams. And the signings, you know, where they've, when they've chosen to spend big money, they've spent it pretty well on Barella, on Hakimi, he's been brilliant this season, but uh, most of all on Lukaku, who's been an absolute revelation in Italy, uh, has completely uh, taken his game to a new level. He can do absolutely everything now. You know, he's a goal scorer, he's a creator, he's a leader, and he's a link-up man, and he's really been the um, key player for them this season. And on top of that, they've got the best defence in, in the league, conceded the fewest goals. Their back three of Spriniar, De Bruyne, Bastoni, Conte was saying, reminds him of his old BBC back three in Juve uh, of Benucci, Pellini and Bazzali, which is high praise. And you can see why, because they've been a very well-balanced unit. 
so yeah, it's it really is a team that has a bit of everything, and no doubt they've been helped by going out in the Champions League group stages and being able to focus just on the league. Um, I have no doubt about that. But at the same time, I think doing so and getting better as the season's gone on will hopefully put them in a position to be able to compete better in that competition now. So. Absolutely, it will be interesting to see how they do over the summer, who they recruit and how they enter next season. Um, but you mentioned that the title race in Italy is done and the top four is up for grabs, but in Spain it's the opposite. The top four is locked down and the title race is very much up for grabs. Uh, Emily, it's really been a crazy seven days in Spanish football, right? I mean, you have Madrid's game in the Champions League followed up with a good win over Asasuna. Uh, Barcelona lost 2-1 to Granada at Camp Nou just as they had the opportunity to take the title race into their own hands. Uh, Atletico won at Elche 1-0. Uh, Barcelona beat Valencia 2-3 sorry 3-2 last night in uh, Mestalla uh, Brace from Lionel Messi taking the 28 goals this uh, La Liga season remarkable uh, just behind Robert Lewandowski in the golden boot race uh, Sevilla play athletic club this evening Monday evening um, at the Sanchez Pijuan if Sevilla win this game they go a point behind Barca two behind Madrid and three behind Atletico so it's really really tight going to the final four games uh, next weekend, Sevilla are playing Madrid in Valdebebas. Uh, Barcelona are playing Atletico at Camp Nou. So really titanic few days coming up for Spanish football. Um, what's your take on the title race? I mean, like it's another huge week for Madrid in terms of they have Chelsea Wednesday and they have Sevilla at the weekends. I mean, on one hand, if they beat Chelsea to get a place in the final and then follow it up with a defeat of Sevilla at Valdebebas, it would be a great week. Conversely, if they lose both those games, things will take a turn for the worse, you could say, in terms of the mood around uh, the, the, the Alfredo Di Stefano Stadium. Um, what's your kind of take ahead of this week? Uh, and also, um, how do you think it's going to go, not just from a Madrid perspective, but from across Spanish football? Yeah, I mean, I think Madrid specifically, they're going to be walking on eggshells. I think you pointed it out perfectly there, Alan. It's going to really depend on, one, what happens in the semifinal against Chelsea. And then depending on that result, you know, if they lose, can they bounce back and win against Sevilla? Um, which the matchup between those two sides earlier this season, um, Real Madrid only won 1-0. And it was through an own goal. So... You know, not the most convincing performance from them in that regard. But on the other hand, if they win the semifinal, you know, can they keep the momentum going and bring it into the league? It's going to be a very, very tense um, two matches in just in terms of fighting for the league title and the Champions League title. Um, so it's going to be interesting for sure. But in terms of the La Liga race, to be honest, I don't think you could have asked for anything better. Um, you know, four teams all in contention. And scheduling-wise as well, they all have um, it, like the crucial games coming up, you know. So first play third and then second play fourth, and that's just um, this coming weekend. So it's going to be a thriller of a weekend in La Liga. Grab your popcorn, everyone. It's going to be immense. Um, and it's kind of the best type of thing you can ask for, you know, in, in the season, making it making sure that there are multiple teams in contention who have to actually fight for the title. I prefer it like that. Um, and it's going to be tight. I think, though, like I mentioned before, the earlier matchup in the season between Sevilla and Real Madrid, that was a close one. Um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if it ended in a draw. 
Um, however, for Atletico Madrid and Barcelona, I think Barcelona are going to go all out there. Um, you know, they're playing at home. They'll go up to the top of the table with 77 points. And then if Madrid and Sevilla draw, they'll be outright leaders. But if Barcelona win and Real Madrid win, then Madrid still go to the top of the table regardless because they won both Clasicos this season. So everything's up for everything's really up for grabs. It's insane. Um, the math is, in, is insane. And, you know, the head to head record has a huge play in this season as well. Um, speaking just for Madrid, at least, you know, they have the upper hand on Barca and Atletico Madrid when you're looking at the head to head. So it's going to be it's just insane. I don't know any other way to describe it. It's going to be a very busy Saturday. And I believe Barca and Atletico play first. I believe they play on Saturday and then Madrid and Sevilla is Sunday. So yeah, it's going to be um, pretty nerve wracking just seeing how the first one goes. And then, you know, in the second match, either Sevilla or Real Madrid can basically like create their own destiny because they'll know how the other match happened before. So I'm excited for it. Um, how do you, how do you feel about it? Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of crazy because I mean, like I think every team who are involved in this race have the ability to go on and just close out the season in full strength, but they also have the ability to throw it up in the air. I mean, like Atletico have the bones of a very strong team, but they have fallen off badly since the turn of the new year. Um, Madrid have clicked into gear completely, but they've also been very very stretched recently. A lot of injury problems. Uh, a lot of fatigue issues to key men, uh, the distraction of the Champions League on the horizon as well. Uh, Barcelona look to be, for me, they're the team with the highest ceiling in La Liga this season in terms of their ability, but they're also very suspect in many ways. I mean, that game against Granada was uh, remarkable to watch. So I think it's like, you know, no team is imperious because Sevilla are on paper and in the best form. They've won five in the bounce. Um, but they have failed in all the big games this season. You mentioned that game at the Sanchez-Pihuan, the 1-0. Uh, they lost to um, Borussia Dortmund, of course, in the Champions League, where they should have done really better. Uh, they lost to Barcelona in the second leg of the Copa del Rey semi-final, having won the first leg convincingly. So, you know, it's really up in the air. It's going to be intriguing for sure. But uh, just going beyond the season, what do you think the summer holds for Madrid? Because... Mm-hmm. There's lots of noise around the club at the moment. I mean, obviously, the question marks over Sergio Ramos's future. Um, you know, Zinedine Zidane, uh, will, will he stay or will he go? Uh, what's Florentino going to do in the transfer market? Is he going to go for Mbappe? Is he going to go for uh, Erling Haaland? I mean, like, I'm not going to ask you for your prediction because I think it's impossible to predict. But, you know, what, what do you think is going to happen this summer in terms of uh, how active will Madrid be? Um, I definitely think they're going to be looking to bring in some new players. I think really they, they have to. Um, I mean, how many players are in their 30s? There's Cruz, Modric, Benzema, Ramos, um, Casemiro's up there as well. Like that's basically Madrid's core. Um, and it, there comes a time where, you know, you need the turnover. You need turnover in the squad. You need to bring in fresh legs. Um, I think lots of the players from the Castilla team, they've done um, well. Um, personally for me, they haven't really convinced me too much. I think Antonio Blanco was the one that um, so far has caught my eye the most. So I think he'll be in the squad as well. But I think there's definitely going to be some fishing in the market, whether it's, you know, going out on all out on one player, like you mentioned, Holland or Mbappe. Um, 
either one of those players, if they do end up coming to Madrid this season or even within the next season, it's going to be um, a massive boost for the club. It's a massive boost for any club if they can sign any one of those players because their ceiling is just so high. But um, on the flip side, if they don't sign either of them, Perez I'm speaking with here, um, then I think they're going to be shopping for a few different players um, to boost a few different roles. You know, um, in terms, in addition to Ramos's contract, another key player is Lucas Vazquez. Um, so he's pretty much done for the season. And then there was talks that his contract was going to be over too, and they're not going to offer him a new one. Um, I know rumors have been circulating within the last couple of days that that's kind of turned on its head. And the rumor mill is saying that, hey, they're actually going to give him a new contract, so we'll have to wait and see. But um, his position just within the squad and how versatile he is for this team is going to be immense. So if they do um, get rid of him in the end, they're going to need to replace him 100% because he was up top, he played in the midfield, he played right back. Um, Really, he just played wherever Zidane told him to, which um, is great. Um, Very much a workhorse player. And you know, with Carvajal also getting injured, um, he's another one that's kind of older. I, I really think they just they have to go to the transfer window and they have to make some signings because um, I think you mentioned before there, Alan, Barcelona, like you said, their ceiling is so high in comparison. Lots of young players um, and they're preparing for, you know, a revamp. Atletico, um, I would say they're kind of in the middle of that. Um, but in contrast, Real Madrid, they, they're just older players and, you know, the generation that won the back-to-back-to-back UCLs a few years ago, it might be time to move on from that. So I wouldn't be surprised if they did some shopping. In terms of the manager at the helm, though, I don't really see Zidane going anywhere. Um, You know, he came, he left first to begin with on his own terms a couple of years ago, Um, left on a high, really. What a great way to go out, winning the third UCL title in a row. And then he came back when the club needed him. And to be honest, I think whether they lose, even if they lose both La Liga and the UCL, I really don't see them getting rid of him. And I don't see him wanting to leave either. Um, but I don't know if he does. The question is who would be the one to replace him? And I think that's kind of the bigger question is who can come in and replace Zidane, who's been you know so clutch for this club in the last couple of years. I think... I don't really have an answer to that, so I don't see them getting rid of him, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens for sure. Uh, reporting market today suggesting that um, Madrid are so content with the performances of Antonio Blanco, the defence computer you mentioned, kind of has a very, very almost kind of cross-like way of kind of passing the ball. It's a very aesthetically pleasing way of doing things. I'm a big fan of his. That his emergence means they're actually going to divert attention away from Eduardo Camavinga, the Rennes teenager, uh, toward either Mbappe or Haran, so I'd want to watch for sure. But uh, just to wrap up, we're kind of running low on time. Uh, Jasmine, busy weekend and also not a busy weekend in Germany. I mean, the DFB Pokal had the two semifinals, Werder Bremen losing to Leipzig 2-1, Borussia Dortmund beating Holstein Kiel 5-0. Um, and then off the pitch, there was a whole host of activity going on regarding the uh, the managerial merry-go-rounds. I mean, beginning of the season, I thought the German football was sober, uh, no nonsense and I've learned it's anything but it's a, it's a madhouse with uh, all sorts of things happening so uh, can you try and explain and condense what's gone on this weekend and as uh, kind of succinct terms as possible 
No. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> um, actually, this weekend, there was only the two seconds. Well, basically, um, obviously, Julian Nagelsmann has chosen to go to Bayern. It's not a record fee. I think Jose Mourinho's one from uh, is still the highest. Um, basically, it's uh, 15 million with bonus. Nagelsmann goes to Bayern. All right, so Leipzig have a managerial vacancy. They finally decided on uh, RB Salzburg. Obviously, their farm team where they get all their players from. Um, they're finally going with the manager from RB Salzburg. Now, um, this wasn't as straightforward as people made out. The deal was not done months ago, as some reporters might say. Um, actually, what we thought was going to be pretty straightforward actually wasn't uh Red Bull Leipzig decided to Red Bull they're not Red Bull Leipzig that would be Leipzig um I'll be Leipzig Rosenball Sport Sport yes um it's, there's just so many they're all Red Bulls in the other countries so I always mess up on those they um Leipzig anyway uh, the evening before they announced Marsh, but actually going to go for Glaster. Now, what happened, I'm not quite sure, but um, Marsh found out and basically contacted whoever in Leipzig to be like, no, I think I, I, I want the job. Why am I not in the running? And the next morning, what do you know, Marsh gets the agreement out. So... It, there was some kind of confusion on what Marsh could offer this current Leipzig team structure. And some think with his tactics, it could be going back to the old Leipzig pre-Nagelsmann, which might be a step back in Glasner was actually a better fit. So it will actually be um, quite interesting to see in the new season. Um, we also had one other managerial sacking with Augsburg second there, manager Herrlich, um, but no one really cares about them. What is interesting, though, is, as you said, the DFB Pokal final, um, which will be set up between Dortmund and Leipzig. Um, this will be the first chance for Dortmund to actually win something in four years. The last time they were in the final with Thomas Tuchel in 2017 was the last time they won anything. Um, and for Leipzig, this final is the first thing that they'll ever win apart from a promotion. So this is basically the first actual silverware for Leipzig. Marsh seems like a very interesting character, um, kind of polarizing in many ways. Could you explain a bit what he's like in terms of personality? And also, what's the kind of reception to American coaches in the Bundesliga? Because obviously, uh, Bob Bradley got quite a bit of uh, media attention when he was uh, building his coaching career from a club perspective. Um, is it the same thing in Germany or is that kind of an English uh, mentality to kind of focus so much on uh, an American coach in the European game? I think he is. I think it's quite, he has been very good for Salzburg in, in terms of his way of coaching and his tactics and mentality. It's very European. Um, and he's not the only, he won't be the only American coach in the league. Uh, Stuttgart's Matarazzo is Italian, uh, Italian American. And he does hardly gets any kind of 
noticing because he's American as well, just because he speaks German perfectly and kind of blends in that people tend to forget that he's American also. Um, so I think it's kind of someone more who sounds more American and who is more American in interviews and a little bit more outspoken, a little bit more, shows a bit more personality in that way, um, I think gets picked up on more. Um, but yeah, as I said, his kind of coaching, his tactics are more European. It kind of blends in with what he's done at Salzburg. And yeah, I think, I don't know if it will be a good fit, but he is a good manager. Um, we were, me and John were discussing before coming on today that how I've compared him to Marco Rosa, who came from um, Salzburg as well, but obviously went to Mönchengladbach. Um, and I think he has a little bit more tactical structures and solutions in possession, especially compared to Rose. He took that Salzburg team and made them qualify from the Champions League. They got dealt a pretty tough Champions League group, but they definitely gave it a go um, and with a worse squad than Marco Rosa had. So he's definitely one to watch, even if he doesn't particularly work, work out at Leipzig. Fascinating, yeah. And Emily, I got to ask you, um, what you think of your compatriot, uh, Alfonso Davies? I mean, I know you're a big fan of his, but just how big is he in Canada? And how big do you think an impact he'll have on Canadian football uh, in the coming decades based on the success he's enjoying at Bayern Munich? Oh, he's arguably one of the biggest celebrities in Canada, without a doubt, whether you're talking sports, actors, um, politicians. Alfonso Davies is 110% up at the top. Um, I mean, especially in what we call over here, obviously, the soccer scene in Canada. Um, you know, he just has an incredible story. And then coming through the Vancouver Whitecaps at the MLS um, League over here and then going all the way to winning a Champions League title, Bundesliga titles. It's been an incredible rise for him. Everyone um, is just always excited to see him do well. My Twitter feed is always flooded with um, Davies content, whether Byron's winning, whether Byron's losing. Um, everyone, specifically all my Canadian, um, you know, co-workers and stuff, they're just, everyone's following him so closely. And really, he's bringing that success with him back to the national team, which Canada's really trying to improve and get better. So, you know, it, ahead of the 2026 World Cup too as well. It's, it's, it's really great. He's helped put soccer on the map in Canada where a sport like hockey has been so dominant and still is dominant. Um, but no, he's definitely helping it grow over here. Everyone's always super glad to see him do well. Um, and even to see him up for the Golden Boy Award, that was incredible. A lot of people um, were really hoping he would win that, but I believe it was Holland. So, I mean, not going to lie, tough competition, but um, he definitely deserves uh, all the praise that he can get. So, Really excited to see him doing well, and you know some other Canadians. Hopefully, Jonathan David and Ligon. Hopefully, he's doing as well, doing really well. So, um, always great to see Canadian players on the big stage, and you know making some big moves. Definitely, definitely. That twenty twenty six World Cup that you mentioned is the one that Sergio Ramos intends on retiring at. Um, according to an interview he gave recently, he wants to play a World Cup when he's forty years old, which would be quite, quite a feat. But I wouldn't put it past old Sergio. He can do pretty much anything he puts his mind to, good and bad, it seems. <laughs> um, John, just to finish off, a quick word of the top four race in the Premier League. Now, 
Everton's defeat to Aston Villa, Goodison Park, cannot be spoken of. I'm taking an executive decision on that one. We can describe that from the uh, agenda. Um, but Spurs beat Sheffield 4 0. Leicester beat Palace 2 1 and then drew with Southampton 1 all. Uh, Burnley playing West Ham tonight. Um, how do you feel the top four race is kind of shaping up? I think it's going to finish as is, and that sounds maybe a little bit boring. Um, before that, I would have fancied Leicester might skid, but they've, apart from that Southampton draw, they've had a kind of a good result, run of results lately. And I think Chelsea just have too much depth, even if they are juggling between the Premier League and Europe. Uh, Spurs are fifth. Like a lot of people, a lot of people seem to be surprised by the fact that Spurs are fifth, be, fifth because the whole narrative around their season is how poor they've been, all the doom and gloom of Mourinho. But they had an excellent win over Sheffield United. I think a lot of people are very tempted to view Gareth Bale's form through the prism of wanting to be primed to play for Wales in the Euros. But whatever it was, he was absolutely superb. And he's low-key, had a good season. He scored 10 goals for Tottenham this season. And he hasn't always played that often. He's been kind of peripheral at times. So uh, that's been a very good return for him. And it's also just showed how much of an excellent player he is when his head is in the game. And when he's focused, he's he's massively talented. And uh as for West Ham and Liverpool, I just think they have too much left to do and it's going to be disappointing for them. But I guess fans of irony will enjoy the fact that Liverpool won't qualify for the Champions League given their status as an agitator for the Super League. And Alistair was saying something similar about Juve and Milan. So uh, it'd be quite funny actually to see that transpire. So uh, I, as boring as it sounds, I think the top four race will stay as is, despite the fact that Leicester have a very difficult final three games of the season I think it'll stay as is and uh, Chelsea Leicester United and City will represent England in next year's Champions League yeah I'd be inclined to agree with you on that one I don't think anyone is going to break into that top four at the moment Um, but listen guys thanks so much for joining me I really really appreciate it very very fascinating conversation uh, touching across all the European action and uh, I'm certainly looking forward to this week's football Um, just if you can drop your socials quickly just so people can uh catch up with you after the episode and follow your thoughts on Twitter. I guess the ban will be ending at 12 o'clock tonight. The uh, the boycott, sorry. So we'll be all full steam ahead. Um, Emily, what's your social media? Uh, my Twitter is at Wilson underscore EMT. Perfect. Jasmine? At underscore Jasmine Barber. You can find me on Twitter. Brilliant. Alistair? Yeah, it's at AKS McKenzie on Twitter. Perfect. And John? Last but not least? It's at... It's at Notorious JOS on Twitter. Very likely to be released, but sure, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get away with it. <laughs> perfect, perfect, perfect. And for me, you can get me at Azul Feely on Twitter. And yeah, thanks so much for your time, guys. I really appreciate it. And to the listener, I hope you enjoyed. If you did, please share, recommend, all that good stuff. Keep spreading the word so we can continue to bring you episodes of uh, this depth. And yeah, enjoy the week's football, guys, and talk to you soon.